Welcome to Poetry Lectures, featuring talks by poets, scholars, and educators, presented by PoetryFoundation.org. In this program, Australian poet Les Murray speaks with American poet Kevin Young. Les Murray is considered one of Australia's greatest contemporary poets and has won numerous literary awards. He was born in 1938 in New South Wales on a farm he moved back to with his own family in 1985. Murray often writes about Australian history and landscape and life in the rural areas. His work is praised for its inventive use of language and sense of humor. In addition to his poetry, Murray is a prolific author of essays, criticism, and fiction, and is the editor of many anthologies of poetry. Kevin Young was born in 1970 in Lincoln, Nebraska. While a student at Harvard, he became a member of the Darkroom Collective and later earned an MFA from Brown University. He has published many books of poetry, including Ardency, a chronicle of the Amistad rebels, and Dear Darkness, and has edited many anthologies. Young's book of essays and criticism, The Gray Album, won the 2013 Penn Open Award. Les Murray talks about the tradition of artistic hoaxes in Australia, including a fake modernist poet. He reads some excerpts from his work and tells how he hid his Catholic faith from his father and reveals other family secrets. The conversation took place at the Poetry Foundation in Chicago in April 2013. Well, it's a real pleasure meeting you, having written with you uh, just briefly, but having read your work for years and admired it, we were talking about sort of where we were from, and you're from the same patch of land where you grew oh, up, is that yeah. right? Tell me a little about it. It's a valley about eight miles wide by about eight miles long, and it's called Bunya, about 200 uh, miles north of Sydney. Uh, it's, it's lovely to talk in miles. We use kilometres these days, but uh, <laughs> in America I can I can talk miles. And what's the landscape like? Ah, uh, it's uh, low hills in the middle and, uh, and and quite quite reasonably high hills around the edges. It's a sort of cupped valley where where the uh, land starts to go up off the uh, coastal plain into the into the mountains. You would probably say it's the um, geographical equivalent of the um, Appalachians. Uh huh. Maybe not just the ge geographical equivalent of the Appalachian. <laughs> the uh, emotional and... Uh... Well, certainly in the past, not so much now. Well, I was wondering about origins. Um, we had written, and I was doing this food anthology, and you had mentioned, um, you know, you didn't have many food poems, which I found incredible because uh, there's so many great ones, the broad bean sermon and, you know, pure food, that poem about sort of laws and food. And I, I'm just sort of wondering how your home place... And food, you know, the Broad Bean Sermon especially seems about that. Is that what it's about, about your home place? No, it was uh, a garden I had in Sydney. Oh, okay. We uh, had a garden in the backyard. And I think I must have exhausted it because the beans were never as good again. <laughs> <laughs> well, is that a poem you wouldn't mind reading or do you? I wouldn't mind reading it. Yeah. yeah. Broad Bean Sermon, sure. Beanstalks, in any breeze, are a slack church parade without belief, saying, trespass against us in unison. Recruits in mint Air Force Dacron with unbuttoned leaves. Upright with water like men, square in stem section, they grow to great lengths, drink rain, keel over all ways, kink down and grow up afresh with proffered new green stuff. Above the cat-and-mouse floor of a thin bean forest, snails hang wrapped in their food. Ants hurry through several dimensions. Spiders tense and sag like little black flags in their cordage. Going out to pick beans with the sun high as fence tops, you find plenty and fetch them. An hour or a cloud later, you find shirt fulls more. 
At every hour of daylight appear more that you missed, ripe, knobbly ones, fleshy-sided, thin, straight, thin crescent, frown-shaped, bird-shouldered, boat-keeled ones, beans knuckled and single-bulged, minute green dolphins that suck, beans upright like lecturing, outstretched like blessing fingers in the incident light, and more still oblique to your notice that the noon glare or cloud light or afternoon slants will uncover. Till you ask yourself, could I have overlooked so many or do they form in an hour? Unfolding into reality like templates for subtly broad grins, like unique court expressions. Like edible meanings, each sealed around with a string and affixed to its moment. An unceasing colloquial assembly, the portly, the stiff, and those lolling in pointed green slippers. Wondering who'll take the spare bag fools you grin with happiness. It is your health. You vow to pick them all. Even the last few weeks off yet, Miss Chapinus toes. What a great poem! Thank you. How did you put it? The um, there's such a prodigiousness there, and and it's almost is it an ars poetica, a poem about poetry? You think you can see it that way? I didn't think of it at the time as a ars yeah. poetica, but uh, I, I thought of it as an ars. ars uh, uh, I can't think of the Latin word for bean off the top of my head. <laughs> well, but it's an unceasing colloquial assembly. Yeah. Portly, the stiff. I mean, it's kind of a congregation of these beans. Yeah. How do you think that, does that describe your poetics too? Or? Oh, I hadn't written most of my poetics at the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, Maybe it was a, a forecast. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it is now. I mean, certainly I think it has this kind of generative quality and, and your work is so prolific. Um which is a word I hate people sometimes ask me about, so I thought I'd ask you about prolificness. I mean, do you think of it in that way? Or, you know, your collected poems are so vast. No, I just do the next poem. Yeah. I suppose the thing I liked best in this poem was uh, uh, Prophet Near Green stuff. Mm-hmm. I was very much after sound effects at the time. Yeah. And now I don't think about them much because they, they, they write themselves. Yes. They, they, they've learned to look after themselves. Another early of your poems that I love is the um, Essays on Interest. The first and second essay on interest, the ones about the emu. Oh, yeah. I don't think it's in this book, but you can lend me your book. Sure. I love that poem. You know, maybe we can talk about it and then you could read it. But uh, you talk about, well, in the first essay, you talk about this interest that blinks our interests out and alone permits their survival. Uh, and then you say it is a form of love. Yeah, and and in the second essay you talk about emu. Uh, I think it's just a beautiful poem. Similarly, um, this idea of interest. Uh, what did you mean by interest there? Oh Lord, such a long time since I wrote it. When are these from? Uh, I don't. It was an analysis of a mental event, mental sort of uh, process, you know. And I went on to do more of that sort of thing. Uh, partly in uh, in essays, you know, trying to work out an Ars Poetica for myself, you know, what what happens when uh, when we write poetry, and I finally come to the idea that uh, three things are involved, three three minds that we've got. One's called the dreaming mind, uh, could be called anything, a number of other things, fantasy and so on. One's the uh, rational daylight uh, sort of reasoning mind, and one's the body, which then looks after dancing and gesture and. Uh, uh, a lot of a lot of forms of imagery and so on, and when they're in a kind of concert or um, uh, fusion with each other, then poetry can exist. Yeah. Is the emu all three? I wasn't thinking of that then. It was before I thought of that thought, <laughs> that stuff. I know. I'm just fond of the, the emu. Yeah. Well, it's beautiful how you describe the emu. Then you said, "Now only life survives if it's made remarkable 
we're remarkable and not. We're the ordinary discovered on a strange planet. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. It was, I was wrestling with various thoughts and paradoxes at the time. The emu is famous for being a curious bird. It doesn't fly, but it, uh, it gobbles things down, swallows them, and they, it, it never chokes on them. And people think uh, if you eat a shovel full of concrete, you're going to ha- uh, your, your guts are going to fuse into a stone and you're going to die. The emu just uh, passes them through. <laughs> Would you read that, that one, maybe? Sure. Second essay on interest, the emu. Weathered blonde as a grass tree, a huge beetle's haircut, raises an alert periscope and stares out over scrub. Her large olivine eggs click oilily together, her lips of noble plastic clamped in their expression, her head fluff a stripe worn mohawk style. She bubbles her pale blue windpipe, the emu, Dromaeus novae hollandii, whose stand-in on most continents is an antelope looks us in both eyes with her one eye and her other eye. Dignified, courageous hump, feather-swaying, condensed camel, swift courser of New Holland. Knees backward in tooth three-way boots, you stand, dinner one, proud emu, common as the dust in your sleeveless cloak, returning our interest. Your shield of fashion's wobbly, your quaint, your native, even somewhat bygone. You may be let live, but beware, the blank zones of serious disdain are often carte blanche to the darkly human. Europe's boats on their first strange shore looked humble, but mass over, men started renaming the creatures. Worship turned to interest and had new features. Now only life survives if it's made remarkable. Heraldic bird, our protection is a fable made of space and neglect. We're remarkable and not... We're the ordinary discovered on a strange planet. Are you early or late in the history of birds, which doesn't exist and is deeply ancient? My kinships too are immemorial and recent, like my country, which abstracts yours in words. This distillate of mountains is finely branched, this plain expanse of dour, delicate lives where the rain-shrouded slab on the west horizon is a corrugated revenance settling its long clay-tipped plumage in a hatching descent. Rubberneck, stepsister, I see your eye on our jeep's load. I think your story is when you were offered the hand of evolution, you gulped it. Forefinger and thumb project from your face, but the weighing palm is inside you, collecting the bottle tops, nails, wet cement that you famously swallow. Your passing muffled show, your serially private museum... Some truths are now called trivial, though. Only God approves them. Some humans who disdain them make a kind of weather which, when it grows overt and widespread, we call war. There we make death trivial and awesome by rapid turns about. We conscript it to bless us, force-feed it to squeeze the drama out. Indeed, we imprison and torture death. This part is called peace. And we offer it murder like mendicants, begging for significance. You rustle dreams of pardon, not fleeing in your hovercraft style, not gliding fast with zinc-flaked legs dangling, feet making high, tensile, seesawing impacts. Wasteland parent, barely edible dignitary, the disinterested spotlight of the lords of interest and gowned nobles of ennui is a torch of vivid arrest and blinding after-darkness. But you hint it's a brigand sovereignty after the steady extent of God's common immortality whose image is daylight detail, aggregate in process, yet plumb. 
To the everywhere focus of one devoid of boredom. That's great. I think that's our natural enemy after all, boredom. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Maybe I was approaching it. I was writing a bit long there. Yeah, but I, I think there's a, f- a full quality to what you're trying to capture with. Yeah, it, I, I was working out a whole nexus of thought. Well, I love this idea of the wasteland parent you call the emu. Yeah. And I wonder if we might turn to some of the Australian poets, the five fathers that are in your book, Five Fathers, but also Helen After. How 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 do you you know, see them uh, as these sort of, are they wasteland parents or are they quite different? Uh, You know, obviously they're different from each other, but when did you come to sort of uh, represent them? I first tried to represent these five fathers in uh, a book for the English market. I thought uh, uh, the 19th century was, um, 19th and early 20th century was not a barren era in Australia. It was uh, really quite productive. I was trying to show them the, the riches of, of, of a period of Australian literature from the, the 30s to the 60s, I guess. Uh, Australian literature as a, as a discipline in universities was only just starting. I think it started in the University of Toulouse and moved to Moscow. The, the, the Soviets used to think uh, we, we were promising people. So I uh, made a fairly tight selection of each of those five. And they all had in common a certain richness of diction. And I thought that uh, they might not be as experimental as American poets, but they, they had a, a great richness. That was, that was their thing. The experimentalism came in the next generation, and it usually was second-rate or second-hand. Uh, it was America being um, imitated. But the, the second of those books, the one, Helen After, it was partly because of a, rem- a remarkable chap, Frank the Poet McNamara, who was dimly remembered. The communist sort of, an uh, old communist chap, began putting together the uh, uh, the surviving bits of Frank the Poet. And I thought this deserves to be uh, widely known. Because Frank the Poet was a total recidivist. Australia, as you know, started as a, uh, a British um, uh, convict colony. And uh, after America got its independence, the convicts had to be sent somewhere and uh, they began to be sent to New South Wales. And he was sentenced for seven years and served 21 of them. He was repeatedly flogged because he couldn't restrain his witty tongue. And uh, several very funny poems there, including the long one called uh, A Convict's Tour to Hell, in which Frank um, goes down to hell expecting that that's where convicts go. And the devil said, oh, no, we, we never, uh, we, we hate the poor, we never never accept convicts. But if you like, you can come through and see who we do accept. It turned out that hell consisted of uh, well, the floggers and the admin- jail administrators and the man who discovered Australia and the man who, did, who invented jails and all sorts of wonderful chaps having a very bad time. Yeah? <laughs> and then Trank goes off to, uh, to heaven and... St. Peter is a bit doubtful about him, but Jesus said, no, no, Peter, we, we've, uh, we're delighted. Uh, Frank's arrived at last. Job, uh, go and kill the fatted calf. <laughs> <laughs> and it's going to be a wonderful feast. At that point, uh, Frank wakes up. But uh, uh, it's a, a sort of folk da- uh, Dantesque, if you like. You know? <sighs> and there were a number of other fine poets I thought I could put in there, particularly Mary Gilmore. She wasn't all as good, but where she was good. She hit some uh, some good notes, and uh, she lived to be a hundred. No, she lived to be ninety nine, and uh, so had a wonderfully long writing career. And uh, I liked her a lot. So she she got in on that basis, and then a couple of other people as well. 
There's a lot of good stuff back there in the early parts of Australian settlement. And so I was trying to pick up on it and uh, give handy, condensed uh, views of it. Yeah. Do you see the poet's role as this kind of, you know, reclamation and, and representing forefathers, foremothers, it can forebears? Be. It can be, yeah. It would not have been as well expressed without them. Yeah, you know. There was a, a tremendous uh, tradition in the past, of course, of Aboriginal poetry. But uh, that's largely a closed book uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, most of it was never collected in, uh, in a book form or a written form. Uh, and it's, uh, it, all, the, all the best of it is secret. It's, it's religious uh, secrecy. You have to be initiated to know it. And uh, you're not supposed these days to borrow from it either. And that's just a very different way of doing art. You know, the, it's for the community, not uh, the, that immediate community. Um, it's not for uh, general distribution. What is for general distribution is painting. <laughs> of all industry, there's only one Aboriginal industry and it's painting. And song, it's gradually creeping up too. Uh, the Aboriginal culture being utterly different from ours, it seems proceeding in a, in a different kind of uh, development. Uh, one question I had was sort of about James Macaulay and also sort of, Ern Malley, who's someone who I find fascinating. Uh, for those who don't know, he was a hoax poet. A lot of people, he's the most famous of all Australian uh, Well, poems. of course, yes. Yeah. Uh, not to me, but I think his the poems written under his name uh, by Macaulay. Um, and what was his collaborators? Uh, what was his name? Harold Stewart. Yeah, Harold Stewart. He um, went off to Kyoto and became a Zen monk. That's right, that's right. Uh, during wartime, right? It's it's the 40s. Yeah. Tell me about, I don't know, either Malley or, or Macaulay or both. Macaulay was a, a severe man. Um, you would have seen it straight away from his face. He had a severe expression. He was a wonderful jazz player, apparently, on the, uh, the, uh, the piano. Um, brilliant student at Sydney University. And uh, was rescued from the army by a fellow called Alf Conlon, who was uh, kind of a behind-the-scenes string puller in the uh, in um, military circles. It was a, a scheme to get the best minds in Australia out of the army and into a place where they'd be safe. And um, Jim was one of them. And later he became an administrator in New Guinea, which was then an Australian colony. And um, one day in Victoria Barracks in Melbourne, he and... Harold Stewart was sitting around with nothing much to do and decided to invent a, a modernist poet. It took all afternoon. <laughs> then they uh, wrote a wonderful covering letter from uh, his equally mythical uh, sister who said that she'd discovered these old poems. Maybe they, they would be of interest to somebody. And, uh, and the letter was so beautifully composed that uh, uh, in just the style of such a woman that uh, it fooled everybody. And um, Max Harris was a, an editor of, uh, of note in Australia at the time and he was taken in completely. And the O'Malley poems became famous briefly until uh, uh, Stuart and uh, Macaulay revealed the nature of the, uh, uh, the hoax. And then it went before a police court in case, just in case it was an obscenity. You know. <laughs> These policemen said they, they didn't know what the devil it meant, but they thought it might just be obscene. And it's been hanging on ever since. Uh, one school of Australian poetry re reveres O'Malley and, uh, and the other one uh, tends to sniff at him. 
And I tend to laugh. I think it was a great joke and produced some good imagery. Yeah, that's what I think. I mean, I think it's funny and sometimes hilarious and, you know. Yeah. Australia's full of, Australian artistic history is full of hoaxes. Whenever anything gets to be too fashionable, it uh, tends to get sent up. And, oh, boy, does it get sent up. Is that why you think they, uh, people hoax there because just to send things up? Is it a particular Australian thing, you think? Australia is a very collective culture and it doesn't believe in people getting ideas above their station. And if they do, they uh, they often find themselves uh, cut down to size and ridiculed. And uh, the method method used is very ruthless uh, hoaxing. It's a, it's a fascinating chapter, I think. Turning back to your work, um, I was curious in your novel in verse, Freddie Neptune. Oh, Freddie, yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about him, it? It seems to me a like important demarcation in your work. I was suffering badly from depression. Depression gave me a number of things. It gave me a set of poems about, or from the point of view of animals once, because I wanted to get out of my own head for a while. It was a bad place, my head. Mm. And um, Freddie was the biggest and best thing that came out of that. Uh, he appeared before, before my uh, mind's eye and said, I'm Fred Bircher. Uh, German-Australian. Uh, I lost my uh, sense of touch because of something utterly shocking I saw. Write my story. And it was as if it was given all the way through. I, th- I thought, start writing this thing, and whenever it slid off and started to, to look a bit inauthentic, it wasn't Fred, I would rub that bit out and go back. I kept it on, on the line all the way. And um, I wrote about four, no, five chunks of about uh, four months each, four or five months each, and then the rest of the year of uh, meditating on it and uh, getting it ready for the next book. And uh, it came out. It was instantly rejected by the critics in Australia. They hated it. And uh, I've never quite understood why. And uh, the Germans and the Americans seemed to love it. The first place, though, it was translated was Norway. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know what their reaction was. I never saw any of the reviews at all. Is there some of it you would read for us, or is is there a part that you can excerpt? Yeah, I could. You could open the book and start reading anywhere. Was that part of your design? Well, it was designed not to be written in uh, literary language at all, and it was the, the language of my father's uh, youth, early 20th century Australian, but with, spoken by a person who's uh, bilingual and uh, makes Germ- German mistakes and German jokes a bit. And, uh, well, this probably would do. He won't serve in the First World War or indeed the Second because he doesn't want to uh, kill Germans or Australians, he being both. I think more people should take this in mind. You know, don't, don't shoot your ancestors. In May, we reached Berlin. I should mention the, the we means uh, Fred and, uh, and a friend of his called uh, uh, Leland Golightly, who is a... Who is a, a Hermaphrodite. In May we reached Berlin. We had a sheaf of dates to play in Wedding, in Lichtenberg, in Pankow, none of the snob suburbs. On our first free night, Leland and I went in spite of drizzle to the centre of town to be impressed. And when we get to Berlin, he muttered in tune, the Kaiser E will say, Oh, oh, mein Gott, what a bloody woeful lot of the AIFHA. We were on the Spree Island just passing the Royal Palace and Leland was saying, I think I'll sit the next war out as a little kept woman. When we heard yabba yabba zig heil up ahead, over and over like surf and saw a glow brightening. We hurried over the Schloss Bridge into Zeughausplatz, joined the edge of a great crowd there. What's on? 
The students, they're burning all the Jew books and German hater books. We work through to the steps of the Opera House for review. We burn you, Sigmund Freud, for your filthy incest theories that demean mankind. We burn you, Ernst Kassira, for your corrosive Jew analysis of noble poetic thought. We burn you, Heinrich Heine. They heaped the books in armfuls to be shingles on a blazing house. Second time I'd seen books burnt, and this time it was official. What's that big place they're carrying the books out of? I asked Leyland. Seems it was the university. Was? Well, it won't be now. Couldn't win its arguments. That's the public library next door there where Goebbels is singing. He had a big bass voice for a pipe stem of a man. A lot in the crowd were hesitant about their Zieg hiding, but scared of those that weren't. And I listened to a woman, these sows of scholar books have weighed us plain folk down, wrong-footed has got us killed. I'm glad to see them burn. Culture was always for Lord Muck to sneer and pose with. He don't work out in Copernic. Burn, you flattering shitbirds. But I noticed her arm didn't lift. A bone in her shoulder, perhaps, as old ladies used to say. And the crowd was dense. As we were leaving, students fronted us. You're English, yes? And we sang dumb. No, mate, we're Australian. You disapprove of burning books in Australia? If you have books there. I looked at Leland. Auntie Lula had a book, didn't she? She had three or four. There was one she dipped in water to give to sick cows. What sex is the eagle, it was called. By this stage they dismissed us for idiots and waltzed off. There were hardly any words in my act and I reckon the customers were just happy to see heaviness get lifted up where they might still walk out from under it. To me the weights that volunteers strained at testing, plus all the motorbikes, anvils, park seats and people on them, were just like zeppelins. I laid hands on them, they took off and floated overhead as I filled them with my breath. Yeah, Fred is working as a strongman. Because he has lost his uh, cutaneous sensation, the, the sensation in his skin, he can't feel how much effort costs and makes him very strong. And so he's working. He, he did it in Australia and he's doing it in Germany there. But uh, that's the famous burning of the books in uh, uh, Berlin at that time. I didn't know, and I wish I had, that the, the city librarian of uh, Berlin kept uh, the Nazis out of the library. He didn't let them burn any of the books. He must have been a real hero, that one. Yeah. yeah. Was well, is Freddie for you a hero? He is, in a funny way. He would probably not uh, think such a thought. It would never cross his mind. But he is the hero of a book. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, the, and he sees a lot of the history of the first half of the uh, 20th century. The book starts in 1914 and... Uh, ends in uh, the middle 40s, about 1949, when Fred gets his um, when his sensation back. And that's a mysterious chapter as well. Well, do you think of it, I mean, you know, it's hard to think. The New York Times praises it as a haunting, loving, fiercely democratic epic by a master poet. I love this idea of the democratic epic. Uh, are there other democratic epics you have in mind, either in Australia or, or in English? Huckleberry Finn mm. is one that I can think of. There are probably others. There's no sort of, or there are very few high-status people in Freddie Neptune. There's one uh, very strange uh, quasi-medieval uh, German noblewoman that he runs across at one point. Oh, and he runs across a, a few known people. I mean, he's a, he's a friend of Marlene Dietrich, 
And uh, Mar Marlene, as we all know, if she if she liked a man, man a bit, she would sleep with him. If she liked him a lot, she would cook for him. She really believed in food. She'd been hungry in her life, you know. And she, <laughs> she knew she knew about food. Well, I love this idea of the democratic epic. That's good. I, I wonder if turning to sort of your more recent work, after conscious and verbal, that that's a book of recovery for you. Yeah, very literally. Yeah. Uh, huh. I was uh, I, I went down with a, I, I went into a coma because my uh, gallbladder burst and the, the little fellows that live inside you and which will, will eat you when, they, when you don't feed them anymore, they call it E. coli, they were eating my liver. It was the nicest thing they could find. And uh, it was quite a job to turn them around and stop them doing it. And uh, I, I came back by the skin of my teeth, more or less. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, right, oh, from, from here on, I've had my death scene, I've uh, had my rehearsal. I, um, the rest of life is now afterlife. Somebody had in the newspaper that uh, uh, the doctors had said at the hospital that I was now conscious and verbal. And I thought, that is a God's gift for a uh, book title. I love that title. <laughs> <laughs> I love Taller When Prone, too. That's a great... Uh... Oh, yeah. I've always been, a, if, I, if I may boast, a reasonable uh, inventor of titles. Oh, yeah. I've been learning human, subhuman, re redneck poems. That was, uh, I was going to call it re just redneck poems, but it uh, wasn't offensive enough. I had to strengthen it. Subhuman redneck poems. <laughs> Tell us about that. That I was a bit of a defender of uh, poor people and uh, unprivileged people in Australia and the ones I come from, and uh, this was despised by uh, some of the fiercer intellectuals that uh, defended uh, rednecks and, and, and creatures of that sort. And I thought, make a virtue of it. The book, one of only two of mine that uh, got on the Sydney Morning Herald's uh, bestseller list. That's amazing. For a poetry book, it's, it's unusual. Yeah, I wonder what's the place of poetry in Australian life. Is it, you know, like in Ireland, for instance, poetry f feels like a very daily thing for, you know, your cabbie knows poems. Is there that kind of connection to poetry? It's partly because of the Irish that it is so in Australia. Well, not for everybody by any means, but uh, uh, there is a tradition of that sort. <clears throat> it tends to be a bit narrowed into one kind of poetry, but um, the Welsh are good at uh, commentary verse too. And uh, uh, I've been very impressed by their, their model of uh, poetry. There's a lot of people in Australia consume poetry. And uh, they don't talk about it much, uh, but they'll congratulate you, you know, so, sidelong somewhere. And uh, that'll suit me. I like that. I'd hate to be famous like a rock star or a uh, or a celebrity. <laughs> that would be horrendous. They'd eat you alive. Yeah, there's a poem by uh, William Matthews where he says uh, it's called oxymorons, and one of them for him is a famous poet, which I always thought was quite funny. Turning back to your afterlife, uh, as you said. Tell us more about, you know, how does that, has your poetry changed for you? I've been much more experimental, uh, mm -hmm. teaching myself to do various things. And, and uh, I'll read you a couple of little poems if I may. Sounds perfect. Now, one is related to America and, and, and to critics. And it refers to their civil war, but uh, when I'm, now I'm here in America, I'd have to say your civil war. I wrote a little haiku. I wrote a little haiku titled The Springfields. Lead drips out of a burning farm rail, their civil war. Critics didn't like it, said it was obscure. The title was the rifle both American sides bore. The lead was the heavy bullet, the minier, which tore often wet with blood and sera into the farmyard timbers and forests of that era. 
Would that burnt even now might still remelt and pour out runs of silvery ichor the size of wasted semen it had annulled before. And, uh, yeah, like a lot of foreigners, I'm a bit fascinated by the Civil War. Now, another one altogether. The Conversations. Just, you know, the, the sheer joy we have in, in bits of knowledge we exchange with each other. Um, the Conversations. A full moon always rises at sunset and a person is taller at night. Many fear their phobias more than death. The glass king of France feared he'd shatter. Chinese eunuchs kept their testes in spirit. Your brain can bleed from a sneeze breath. A full moon always rises at sunset and a person is taller when prone. Donald Duck was once banned in Finland because he didn't wear trousers. His loins were feather-girt like daisies, but no, no ostrich hides its head in sand. The cure for scurvy was found, then long lost through medical theory. The beginning is a steady white sound. The full moon rises at sunset and lemurs and capuchin monkeys pass a millipede round to get off on its powerful secretions. Mouthing it, they wriggle in bliss on the ground. The heart of a groomed horse slows down. A fact is a small, compact faith, a sense datum to beasts, a power to man, even if true, even while true. We read these laws in Isaac Neuron. One woman had 69 children. Some lions mate 50 times a day. Napoleon had a victory addiction. A full moon always rises at sunset. Soldiers can now get in the family way. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. I love that. Well, I'm not for nothing the father of an autistic child. You see, the one thing about autists, they uh, they literally love fact. Mm -hmm. And I've always loved fact. Too. I didn't realise that I was a bit of an autistic. I was not only child off a farm, was all I knew, but uh, uh, that is a fairly autistic position to be in. And I thought I'd, I'd have a bit of fun with all my factual knowledge. Yeah, it all seems connected, though. I mean, not in this poetics that you've created, I feel oh, like. Oh, yeah. I'm always trying out new poetics to see how they work. And can we make this work? Yeah, that worked. Uh, no, that one's uh, not not doing the right thing. You mentioned in that in the poem you just read, uh, Faith. And your poems seem to have, you know, certainly your collected poems is a and uh, I think the new poems too is to the glory of God. Yeah. Is that something you you know feel it's comfortable talking I, about? Or it's a thing I don't know a hell of a lot about, and but I, I, I have written on it a few times. There's one little poem that probably um, illustrates it better than, well, better than the others, called Church. Yeah, I turned Catholic when I was, uh, oh, effectively when I was about eighteen, uh, and joined up when I was about twenty-four, and. Um, Never mentioned it to my father. I, knew, I was a bit shy of it because he and mum were uh, fiercely anti-Catholic. But he, he never mentioned it either. So the next 40 years until he died, it never came up in conversation. <laughs> yeah, now, where are you, church? The wish to be right has decamped in large numbers. But some come to God in hopes of being wrong. High on the end wall hangs the gospel from before he was books. All judging ends in his fix, all, including his own. He rose out of Jewish, not English, evolution, and he said the lamp he held aloft to all nations was Jewish. Freedom still eats freedom, justice eats justice, love, even love. One retarded man said, church makes me want to be naughty. 
but naked in a muddy trench with many thousands, someone saying, the true God gives his flesh and blood. Idols demand yours off you. The only other poem I want to mention that I, I particularly love, and especially because you mentioned your father, is that poem, The Last Hellos. Yeah. To me, that's one of my favorite poems, uh, period. And I, I read, it was in this uh, elegy anthology I did, The Art of Losing, and I would read from it, you know, um, because I think it's so powerful about, well, I mean, wrestling with goodbye, but as a kind of hello. I'll read it for you if you like. Yeah, yeah I'd love that. Tell you a sad story about him after, though. The last hellos. Don't die, Dad, but they die. This last year he was wandery. Took off a new chainsaw blade and cobbled a spare from bits. Perhaps if I lay down, my head'll come better again. His left shoulder kept rising higher in his cardigan. He could see death in a face. Family used to call him in to look at sick ones and say. At his own time, he was told. The knob found in his head was duck egg size. Never hurt. Two to six months, Cecil. I'll be right, he boomed to his poor sister on the phone. I'll do that when I finish dying. Don't die, Cecil, but they do. Going for last drives in the bush, odd, massive, bored, slotted stumps, bony, white in whipstick, second growth. I could chop all day. I could always cash a check in Sydney or anywhere, any of the shops. Eating, still at the head of the table, he now missed food on his knife side. Sorry, Dad, but like, have you forgiven your enemies, your father and all them, all his lifetime of hurt? I must have, grin. I don't think about that now. People can't say goodbye anymore. They say last hellos. Going fast over Christmas, he'd still stumble out of his room where his photos hang over the other furniture and play host to his mourners. The courage of his bluster, firm big voice of his confusion. Two last days in the hospital, his long forearms were still red mahogany. His hands gripped steel frame. I'm dying. On the second day, you're busting to talk, but I'm too busy dying. Grief ended when he died. The widower, like soldiers who won't live life their mates missed. Good boy, Cecil. No more bluey dog. No more cow time. No more stories. We're still using your imagination. It was stronger than all ours. Your graves got littler somehow in the three months. More pointy as the clay shriveled like a stuck zip in a coat. Your cricket boots are in the State Museum. Odd letters still come. Two more's died since you, Annie and Stuart, old Stuart. On your day there was a good crowd, family and people from away, but of course a lot had gone to their own funerals first. Snobs mind us off religion nowadays if they can. Fuck them. I wish you God. That's beautiful. That got me a certain amount of <laughs> trouble, that last line. It's, it's the most notorious li uh, line in Australian literature, that one. <laughs> <laughs> How do they argue with it? I mean... Uh... Oh, it's very improper and very very undignified and uh, shouldn't have done it. <laughs> Come here and accept a whack across the hand. You know? <laughs> but you're writing about such, you know, about grief and loss and... Uh... I'm also writing in the language Dad and I spoke to each other. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's a slightly different dialect from the regular round of, or city speech anyway, it's a bit more old-fashioned. You'd be surprised how hard it was to get some of those things printed. They would correct the grammar every time, and you'd have to correct it back out of, uh, out of correct. Right, right. Well, in the spokenness, I think that's one of the things, hearing you read it, but also that when I read it first, that strikes me is, 
is that spoken quality that I think courses through all your work and uh, really is this human language, you know, as opposed to some ideal language, you know, and I love that you call your selected poems learning human, you know, there, there's something really uh, oh, human and humane about that. Oh, good. I like, I like that. I remember the very nice lunch that uh, my English publisher and my American publisher had with me in London the day we, we invented that one. Uh, they said, in America, we never call a book uh, selected poems. We want a proper title. I said, how about learning human? Oh, yes, everybody loved that, so you know when. But no, my father, poor fellow, he, uh, he had a disaster which caused a lot of fellow on disaster in the family. He refused to cut a tree down for his father, who was his employer and, uh, and, and landlord. Devious old alcoholic, he called upon Dad's next brother down to come and cut this tree. It was rotten, you see, it wasn't worth anything. It was, it was hard to get down. And the younger brother, Archie, cut it down and it cut him down. It uh, fell on him and killed him. And so Dad and his father had this terrible subterranean battle all the, the rest of their lives. And the grandfather who owned the farm we were on kept uh, Dad and Mum poor as a um, punishment. That's tough. It's a grim little story, that one. It took me a long time to work it out. What's going on? Why are, the, uh, why are they so angry, you know? Do you ever write about the incident? I did only fairly recently. I finally sorted it out. I knew some most of the elements, but I, I didn't know the uh, how they joined up. Because Dad, instead of telling me about it and saying this is what caused us to be poor, expected me to work it out for myself. And if I hadn't, I was stupid. You know. Well, I come from a long line of farmers, and I can see that you know people don't tell you how things happen necessarily. Yeah, they're they're strange that way. The deepest things go un, unexplained. You know, the people talk about Catholic guilt. I tell you, there's one that's as bad, and that's uh, Presbyterian blame. Dad and his father went in for Presbyterian blame. Wow. They never forgave each other. Until Dad couldn't remember to uh, uh, that he had forgiven. He said, oh, I must have. <laughs> <laughs> because his brain, you know, had a tumour in it. Yeah. And I was rejoiced to hear that. I thought, well, on whatever terms, I'm glad that nightmare's over. Yeah, yeah. Well, you write about it so beautifully and about family and faith and place and, and home and, you know, the future. No wonder they call me a redneck. <laughs> <laughs> that was Les Murray speaking with Kevin Young. This program was recorded at the Poetry Foundation in Chicago on April 25, 2013, as part of International Poets in Conversation and was sponsored by the Harriet Monroe Poetry Institute. Les Murray is the author of over 30 collections of poetry, most recently, Killing the Black Dog, A Memoir of Depression, Taller When Prone, and The Biplane Houses. He's also written numerous collections of essays and other prose, two novels in verse, and is the editor of several poetry anthologies. Kevin Young is currently Atticus Haygood Professor of Creative Writing and English, and curator of literary collections and the Raymond Donowski Poetry Library at Emory University in Atlanta. His next volume of poems, Book of Hours, is forthcoming from Knopf. You can learn more about Les Murray and Kevin Young and read some of their poetry by visiting poetryfoundation.org, where you'll also find articles by and about poets, an online archive of more than 10,000 poems, the Harriet blog about poetry, the complete back issues of Poetry Magazine, and other audio programs to download. I'm Ed Herman. Thanks for listening to Poetry Lectures from PoetryFoundation.org.